Thanks, Chris, and thanks, musicians. Well, we're getting close to Christmas. It's only about five weeks away. And I, I thought it would be appropriate. Last year, I, I did a series on the voices of Advent. And uh, I'll probably be covering part of the same territory uh, in this, but I want to focus in for the next, oh, probably three weeks on the subject of the Incarnation and the Holy Trinity. Now, these are huge subjects, and uh, so I would covet your prayers, um, uh, because uh, at the end of the day, the, the very nature of the Godhead is in many ways a mystery. And uh, sometimes we can over-explain things, and, and, and when you do that, you sometimes mislead, and so it would be my prayer and hopefully yours, that I would be guided by God in, in what I say. Uh, somebody once wrote, it was the author of a book called The Kingdom of the Cults, who said that if you get your doctrine of God wrong, you're wrong all the rest of the way in your thinking. A bit of church history, uh, in or about the year AD 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, asked the leaders of the church to gather at a place called Nicaea, uh, which is now in Asia Minor. It has a, a Turkish name now, but it was in Asia Minor. And the, 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 the gathering of the, lead, of the leadership of the church was to uh, discuss the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Because by that time, and this is nearly 300 years after the earthly sojourn of Christ on the earth, there was a lot of uh, error had crept in. One of the proponents of the error was a man called Arius, and he taught that the Lord Jesus Christ was inferior in his person to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And um, our modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses are followers of that, of that line of thought. And it is a foundational error. Uh, and so the, the, in AD 25, or 325 rather, uh, the, the church gathered uh, to discuss this issue. Uh, is is he God? Is the Lord Jesus Christ God? Or is he a lesser being? Is he a created being? Is he eternal? Or did he have a beginning in time? And part and parcel of this discussion is really the nature of the Godhead. And uh, so it's not a, a, a theo uh, pardon me, an abstract theological issue, but it's one of real <laughs> importance. Uh, we spoke last Sunday on seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as he really is. And so in some respect, this uh, is a continuation of that line of thought. So I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to be doing a fair amount of reading this morning. Uh, whether we'll get through all the material this morning, I, I don't know. But this is where we're going to start, because this is where... The question is posed. 
The question is posed. So we'll read from Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And I could just pause there. That question was posed by the Lord. It's still being posed today. Who is he? Who do men, who, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, that you are Peter and on this rock I will upbuild my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the kingdoms of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you bind, pardon me, whatever you loose in earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Who do you say that I am? Peter got it right not because of any particular human insight, but because as the Lord said, you're blessed, Simon, because it is my Father in heaven that has revealed this to you. And so the issue of the question of who Jesus of Nazareth is has been around since day one of the Christian era. It was an issue Christ raised with his disciples. It was an issue in his confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's an issue that still brings controversy even today. Is he who he says he is? Is he what the scriptures say he is or who he is? And in Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, verse 10, we read, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this? I believe the Bible gives a clear answer to these questions. Who do men say that I am and who is this? And I believe that Peter's answer uh, was the right one because it was a revelation to Peter from God himself. It was no matter of human insight, but a revelation from God the Father. But the question is still asked today. There are going to be three passages that we're going to read this morning that, are, that will be the basis for our thoughts for the next two or three weeks. Uh, they are found in the Gospel of John, uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, and in Hebrews. And we're, I know it's a lot of reading, but I think just so that we get grounded in what the scriptures say about the person of Christ uh, and what he says of himself, I think it's important for us to ground ourselves in that. So would you please turn with me, first of all, to John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. And we're going to read the first 14 verses. The first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, or it did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then if you would turn over to John, John chapter 8. We'll read from verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do not we say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he shall never see death. Then the, Jesus said, then, pardon me, then the Jews said to him, now that we know you have a demon, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my words, he shall never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you? Who are you? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my father is nothing. I beg your pardon. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You have not yet Pardon me, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What was the name that God gave to Moses? When God, uh, pardon me, when uh, Moses asked God, Who shall I say sent me? And God says, Tell them I am sent you. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There was absolutely no doubt what Christ was claiming here. The reaction of the people around him 
indicate that, they were quite ready to stone him on the spot for what they considered blasphemy. It's a claim, a huge claim, and I believe a correct claim. And then finally, if you return to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the... Pardon me, I should say Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Give you the reference there. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also... He made the worlds, and I, that worlds, word worlds can also be translated as ages, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than, uh, than they. Then over to uh, verse 8. But to the Son, and this is God the Father speaking, but to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, and like a cloak you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then finally, over to chapter 2. Over to chapter 2. Speaking of the same one, uh, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, like, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And in that last verse there, verse 14, we hear an echo of the Gospel of John. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. As I say, a lot of reading. In all these passages, we note the very close connection, the very close identification of the Lord Jesus Christ with God. Part and parcel of this, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity, and this will be inevitably part of our consideration. And again, I covet your prayers. Uh, Phil, have you ever had the impression you may have bit off more than you can chew? Well, <laughs> I have that feeling. I have that feeling too. But I, I think it's a necessary thing as we, especially as we near Christmas and the first advent of the Lord, and we remember that the word was made flesh. And I guess I would say that any human thought or expression is bound to be limited, as our minds and our understanding are limited. In John 4, 24, the Lord Jesus says to the uh, Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is sort of our lead into the whole subject of who is God? Who is God or what is God? We speak of the what of God in terms of his nature. We speak of the who of God in terms of his character. And I think we need to, before we sort of tackle the incarnation, we need to make sure we have a, a good grasp of who and what God is. And so we come across the three O's of God, omnipotence, omniscience and omnipresence. And I think this, this statement that the Lord Jesus made to the Samaritan woman is very important. God is spirit. He is not as some would, he does not have as some would teach a material body. He is spirit. And therefore it is possible for him to be in all places at all times. He's not confined. Any material body, however large, has limits. Our God has no limits. And so God is, first of all, omnipotent. He is the source of all power. Uh, to Jacob in Genesis 35, 10 and 11a, God says to Jacob, he says, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name so he called his name Jacob. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. There are no independent powers outside of God. We sometimes speak of the devil as somehow having a separate independent existence, but that's a mistake. Even Satan exercises such power as he does by God's consent and under God's limitation and control. And if you read the opening chapters of the book of Job, you'll see that illustrated. Uh, Satan accuses Job of being pious and reverent because it paid. And so he seek permission to attack Job. And so Job lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. Uh, but Job did not curse God. 
But Satan could only attack Job to the extent and to the degree that God permitted. And sometimes it's a question for us as we look at world events to say, well, what is God causing to happen? What is God permitting to happen? And we don't know sometimes. In fact, we don't know any of the time, really. Uh, and so there are no independent powers outside of God. God is omnipotent. He is the source of all power. Then God is omniscient. That is to say, he knows everything, past, present, and future. If we could turn to one, uh, Psalm 147, we get that, that, uh, that contrast. Psalm 147. Speaking of God, it says in verse 3 of Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. His understanding is infinite. There is nothing outside of the understanding of God. And from his vantage point in eternity, all things are under his oversight. There's nothing outside the scope of his comprehension. He is, as revealed to Isaiah, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. And I think I've shared this story too. Uh, it's recorded by J.B. Phillips in his little book, Your God is Too Small. But they did a, they did a um, sort of a little test with a group of young people. And the, the, in the test, you ask the question and you have to answer immediately without thinking about it. And one of the questions was, does God understand radar? And a lot of them said no. And then, of course, they laughed, realizing, well, that's absurd. You know, God created the electromagnetic spectrum. He knows all about radar. But sometimes we impose a limit on God and think, oh, he, he doesn't understand what I'm going through. Well, yes, he does. And then God is omnipresent. God is almighty. He's omniscient, uh, he's almighty. He's also present at all times and in all places all at once. And I can't get my head around that. Uh, Psalm 139 testifies to that truth, but there's another clear statement of this truth that's found in uh, the book of the prophet Jeremiah. I'll just turn there quickly. You don't have to, uh, you can just listen if you'd like. Psalm, pardon me, Jeremiah 23. And in the context of this passage is uh, about false prophets. False prophets. But in verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 23, God asks some questions. He says, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? I, I, I know what the words say, but imaginatively as I try and think this through, 
that defeats me. And so the God who is present here in this room right now is also present in the Andromeda galaxy two and a half million light years away. He is present at the observable limits of the universe, which I, last time I heard was about 45 billion light years in diameter. And so there you go. God is not limited. And then, as we think of these, these three attributes of God, his almighty power, his omniscience, the fact he knows everything, and his omnipresence, the scriptures also speak of the triune nature of God. That in the Godhead are three persons. And as I say that, I am mindful of the continual affirmation of the Old Testament that God is one. I think it's called the Shema, if I'm not mistaken. It's sort of almost like a, a credo of Judaism. It says, and the Lord Jesus quoted it, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Lord your God is one Lord. There's no question when we talk about the Trinity of falling into some kind of tritheism, tri three gods. There is one God who reveals himself in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Different roles, different function, but there is that essential unity. If we think that sometimes the persons of the Godhead are in competition with each other, we are thinking wrong. There is perfect unity in the Godhead. Uh, and there's indications of, particularly in the New Testament, and we're going to look at some of those uh, later on uh, another time, but uh, one of the interesting ones I think occurs in the very first chapter of the Bible and in Genesis chapter 1 of course we have the creation account uh, began, begins with that grand statement in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then the different levels and types of things are created and then when it comes to the creation of mankind, we notice an interesting thing. I, uh, pardon me, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is the only place where where any level of being is referred to as being made in the image of the God, uh, pardon me, in the image of God. It's a plurality. Let us make man in our image. And here we touch a profound mystery. But uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, who always has good quotes, he says, with the understanding of the Trinity, we see that the reciprocities of love existed in the Godhead from before the foundations of the world. 
The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Also, and we see that in, in the Godhead, or we see in ourselves, rather, a reflection of that triunity, that we are creatures of body, soul, and mind. Body, mind, and soul. Uh, our time is just about gone. We're going to be looking into this in the light of the New Testament in particular. And so within this one Godhead, this, this singularity, we have a triunity of persons. And in their deity, they share all the same attributes. They shame all, uh, ser sh pardon me, share all the same qualities, the same attributes. And so as Peter responded uh, to the question of the Lord Jesus Christ, who do men, or who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as I close this morning, I would just challenge you to all to reflect uh, in the week to come on the, the greatness of God. Uh, sometimes there was a uh, there was a someone wag who said that humanity's created God in their own image. Well, wrong way around. God has created us in His image. But to think of His glory, the the marvelous facts that He is eternal, the high and lofty, the high and lofty One who inhabits eternity. He's the one who created all the stars and yet has, has that breadth of focus, that breadth of attention. He's not like a harried kindergarten teacher with you know, 40 children to handle all on their own. Does that happen? 40 children? Anyway. But God has the breadth of attention to number the stars and yet to focus on the individual broken heart. We think of the God who had the time to focus on Elijah as he fled from Jezebel, his exhausted prophet. Uh, he had the time to, to listen to Hannah's prayer as she prayed for a son. So he has the time, because he dwells in eternity, for each one of us to hear our prayers to focus his attention on our concerns uh, and to see where, where we're struggling. So that's our God. And we've just barely opened the subject. But as next week as we continue, we will see how uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Speaking of God the Father, the, Paul writes that he says that he is the one who no man has seen nor can see, who dwells in light unapproachable. But we will see how the Lord Jesus Christ, as he came into the world in his first advent, was that visible manifestation of the light. John says in his first epistle, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And we saw in John's gospel, as Christ comes into the world, he is called the light of the world. And we're going to f further examine that later on. 
uh, next week as we consider some of these scriptures that we have read in John and in Hebrews. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to a conclusion, our God, we, we think of your greatness, our God. You are the one who fills heaven and earth. And as Solomon said in his prayer of dedication at the temple, you are the one who says that even the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. O oh God, you transcend all time and space. You are the eternal one, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, who promises to abide with those of a contrite spirit. And you are the one who knows all things, our God, who knows our thoughts before they're even formed and our words before they're even, they even take shape. Help us, our God, to have a fresh sense uh, this time of the year as we approach Christmas of your glory, of your grandeur, of your majesty, of your holiness, our God, the God who dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man has seen nor can see. And help us to appreciate our God as we consider the person of Christ as he came into the world, that the one who fills heaven and earth, who transcends heaven and earth, almighty in power, uh, infinite in wisdom, came amongst us, was made flesh in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul could call the image of the invisible God. So help us, our God, to think upon these things and uh, just help us, our God, to have a fresh appreciation of all that you are and of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Bless our time, bless our parting now, our God. We just ask that you would help us. We pray for your blessing on the gathering this evening. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.